When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recording again. I'm also recording again. Hey, I'm recording again. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Yeah. <laughs> I was an A. I was an A, y'all. That was. I think it was an per- A plus. Perfect. And Casey, if you heard that, Tyler sounded totally normal to us. So if there's a problem, it's on your end, oops. and you should That's spend. Oops. I, I, yeah, don't want you. You can fix that in in uh, Audacity somewhere. Somewhere there's a way to manually repair it by like scooting around the waveform. But you have to do Uh, it. I I don't actually have any Herbie Hancock on vinyl, and that needs to be fixed like today. Okay, Okay, that's okay. That song is not an A. We begin on the sound of bells ringing out across the Uhuru, signaling that someone has sighted Gable and their party flying in on the birds from their bachelor party. Not Gable's bachelor party, the bachelor party that Gable was attending. We can see off in the distance from the perspective of the ship, the silhouettes of Metatron, Flea, and Lucas, and the figures who are groggily riding on their backs. Cut to Gable. Uh, Liz, I kind of want to hear how docking or or, or nesting or roosting or whatever we want to call it goes with these birds. What is it like when the birds re-enter their roosts on the ship? Well, my question right now is, can the Uhuru see that other ship? No, okay, no. Yeah. You you were you were at a location kind of far away, certainly outside of like comfortable sight range. Like again, the Uhuru is like meeting up to rally with you uh, at a nearby location. But mm-hmm. there is there's like maybe maybe a couple hours flying, hour or two of flying away from where you're meeting now. Yeah. Uh so I, I think for the sake of expediency, both Wendell and Nodos are each on Lucas and Flea and are comfortable enough kind of guiding them in. And like the way that you dismount off a bird is not the way that you mount dismount off a horse. You can just jump off a horse because there's ground there. It's not too far. <laughs> but for birds, you need to make sure that they are exactly where they need to be and comfortable and settled because otherwise the you you've got nowhere to go if something goes wrong uh so there's like 
I've always pictured the cages at the bottom to be on a sort of ramp where like they're not hanging. They're just more kind of installed on the on the hull at the bottom, but like they mm-hmm. could open to the air if they if they wanted to. It's fairly easy to get them in because that's kind of they're just going into a birdhouse. But Metatron for speed, Gable's trying to get as close to the captain's office pretty quickly. So Metatron just like parks it on the back of the boat. <laughs> and I think we have like one bar that is very thick. And like if a bird wanted to go there, they could, but not everyone's that comfortable with the with the big boys. Uh so Metatron settles down and Gable dismounts there. Ooh, so this is like it's like a kind of swift dismount, a little bit of a risky dismount. Yeah. I love to hear that. I do I think there's like a carpeted section on mm-hmm. the back. Like you you put it there specifically for Metatron or whomever to have a little perch on the back of the ship, which I really like. And because this is like a speedy and more challenging dismount, it is a perfect opportunity for Pliff to shine. As Gable, I think, gracefully like sort of hops down off of Metatron and sprints across the deck to where they're going. Pliff kind of carefully because he's trying to aim so that he comes down off this bird onto the deck and he had really planned to dismount within the cages. So he like sort of carefully pushes himself off of Metatron and he flubs it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, He falls on the deck and face plants. Um, It's not too bad. He doesn't chip a tooth or anything, but like he's hurt. He pushes himself up to where like he's, he's leaning on his hands and then he feels a tug at his foot as Metatron flaps his wings and air rushes across the deck a little bit and Pliff can feel like wrapped around his leg is part of the harness that he is still caught in and attached to. And as Metatron flies off the ship and circles around to move towards the roosts, Pliff is dragged behind Metatron, just dangling from this part of harness. We can see... (laughs) We cut to the roosts themselves, uh, where Metatron has has moved to where they normally go to roost on the ship. The screaming form of Pliff dangling beneath them. Mm-hmm. Metatron, I, I think at this point, looks a little like... It was kind of good fun at first to like, okay, you know, somebody's dangling and screaming, you know, I'm having fun. And now they're kind of over like, hey, this isn't a fun game anymore. This person is now annoying. So they, you know, beak at their cage to like pull it open and they find inside less room than Metatron normally has in there. There are a bunch of boxes that have been moved into this cage. Uh, at this point, Pliff is, screams for help to anyone who might be inside the ship to, to like help him up. And Metatron lets out one of those cool, pitched down, obviously, red-tailed hawk screams that like echoes throughout the ship because somebody put some stuff in his room. Let's cut over to Gable though. Gable, you were rushing across the deck. I think I'm preparing or passing the message along to the the on-deck crew, like giving them directions like, here's where I saw it, here's how far it is, just make making everyone ready up top and then swiftly making my way. I think everyone's still in the captain's office, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm gonna scoot on down there. 
the door to the captain's office bursts open, or however Gable decides to open the door. How does Gable decide to open the door? I knock on the door nicely, say hello. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, No, I I think we all have the same sort of like what what Jonnet was doing earlier, just like, uh, hi. (laughs) I think if this is all happening simultaneously when we last saw... Oromar was having a conversation with uh, Travis about the fact that there is uh, potentially people out there to go and uh, kind of, uh, as part of the crew, to go and cage him up again. Oromar, for his limited bodily and facial movement, is apoplectically pissed. So upon you opening the door with maybe trepidation, Oromar looks up at you, fists still lodged in desk and makes eye contact with you and can't vocalize what do you want, but looks at you. Uh, hi, hello. Uh, just got back. Uh, great time. Had a, thank you for sending us on leave. Uh, there's a boat coming up soon. I couldn't tell. It's a still a ways away. Couldn't tell if it was friendly or not, but I've, uh, told everyone I needed to tell about it. And you look Great. Uh, now you know. So. Arma <laughs> <laughs> removes their fist from desk. I think it takes some of the varnishing with the hand. Um, and uh, kind of signs, is this dangerous? This could, ship, uh, J- is it dangerous? Interesting. James, could I, could I, I couldn't tell anything. We just knew that there was a. Yeah, you, you like got the barest indication of it. Like, you know, it's another ship. It could be anything. It could have been a red feather ship. It could have been a privateer vessel. It could have been another Corsair vessel for all you know. I do not know. I'm happy to get back on the mounts and do a preemptive investigation if that's what you'd prefer. Arma stands and uh, moves around the desk and uh, signs while kind of getting up and moving. I'm taking no precautions today. Everybody to our places. Do not prepare for combat, but let's be vigilant going forward. Oh, man. I feel like, I don't know, have we ever, like, Talked about like what's our <laughs> mysterious vessel fate, like positions within the ship. This is cool. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, no, this is a good, this is a good time to investigate that. Boy, we've been on this boat for two years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might have been on the boat for two years and not been in a circumstance of kind of like we might have to go, go time. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like a lot of the interactions you've had with other ships, you know where you're standing with them, whether they be friend or foe. So mm-hmm. this one is maybe a bit of a weird territory where we're standing close to our guns, but we're not handling the guns just yet. We're giving it a, yeah, bit, of a, yeah. giving it a bit of a peep. It feels like Jonnet, when he's not immediately in charge of like star watching and navigation, is then put like the oldest of the orphan uh, crew members <laughs> so he's got to kind of corral them and maybe there's like a point in the ship where it's like if you veer left or you go like down one level then you'll get to like the orphans like 
moving cannonballs down the line to like supply that. Or if you go like two levels down, then it's like in like the safest part of the ship in case like things go like super south. And so it's like maybe on John it to be like, hey, this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. Well, this is this is a really good time to work this out because the Uhuru itself, like we just made the decision very early on that there are no cannons. That's right. The Uhuru mm-hmm. itself, which I, I think is actually a reasonable decision. I, I've put a lot of thought into how ship combat should work and, and kind of what the role of different things would be. And it feels like the Uhuru itself is a vessel that plans to engage foes at close range. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Uhuru has a large number of crew, which generally means your strategy is probably to board other ships and overwhelm them with, you know, hand-to-hand and small arms force. That makes a lot of sense based on the fact that you also have this thing that uh, attached to your hull that can potentially tear a feather weave and cut the envelope of enemy balloons. And the fact that you have these two big grapple hooks Mm. uh, that are mounted on the side of the ship to grapple onto a ship and reel them in. Also, I kind of feel, and this is just sort of my aeronautical combat theory, that a big strategy in any ship-to-ship encounter would be getting above the enemy ship and dropping what would essentially be bombs, Mm -hmm. uh, either casks loaded with powder and grape shot or, you know, uh, some other form of ordnance, because if you can drop an explosive barrel of powder onto the deck of an enemy ship, you are going to do a lot more damage than you would do with a cannon. And it's something that can really only happen in multidimensional air combat. And we really wouldn't see this on like sea-based naval encounters. So that's kind of where I think the Uhuru would be at, which makes me think the orphan duties it is probably is getting like the, the sickly orphans to a safe place that uh, would be relatively safe from like the cannon fire of enemy ships. So it would be towards the center of the ship inside the ship somewhere. So I want you, Tyler, to describe for me the kind of like orphan safe area and Jonathan's responsibilities, like getting head count for the orphans and whatnot. And after that, make me a perception check. I have to get dice. <laughs> we, we that are, is a very easy tweening here. out of frame. Tyler did that, right? Enjoyed that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was very cinematic. Yep, it's, ca- it's that camera. Mm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I think. So I feel like Jonnet's first, like paramount duty, is to get everyone into the lockbox, the safe room, and then. I think within there, there's like an immediate buddy system that we've established where it's like, hey, Tanner, you're here with Pickle. And it's like, everybody like, it's just like, you got your buddies? And they're like, yes! yes Roger. <laughs> Roger, yeah. And then once that is like set in place, then I feel like, I don't know, I kind of want Jonathan to maybe have some kind of like participation, like in the potential combat. So then once that is like, shored up then john it's like free to like run to where they are like filling the casts or something like something along those lines mm-hmm. mm. um cool and then genesis i'll be my Emporium. boom <laughs> should have logged in before 
always should have logged in before. I have absolutely appeared <laughs> on the tabletop stream before and got like a good half an hour in and then be like, oh, I should probably be looking at Roll20. That seems like a yeah. thing I should be doing. <laughs> I'll remember. Genesis Symporium, you should have logged in before. I, th- I think if we have to look at the character sheets, we've failed as performers for that episode. <laughs> mm. You're more oh. of a, a lyric game free verse kind of person, eh, Johnny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, okay, what am I rolling against? <laughs> uh, you are going to roll against average, I think. That's two. All right. And this is for this is during the hey uh, file into the to the yeah you room. are like sort of you know rushing back and forth like there are some older orphans that you know they each have like their own little job but like you're overseeing the whole operation so you're moving up and down the line making sure that the the line leaders are where they need to be making sure that you know the 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 corridor monitors or whatever are where they need to be t- so that you can get full head count so this is you inside the decks of the ship you know whether I, probably the baja deck I, I can't remember what ranking we gave the different decks in the ship, but I do know it is all cruise ship rankings. So that is a straight wash down the middle. Straight wash. Yeah. Okay, that means that uh, we pull a luminary and see what that tells us. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody in the room, everyone, this is not a drill. Okay, let's get in here. Two by two, get in here. All right, let's go. Oromar has given you like a little triangle to ring, and they recognize yep. that that's like a. <laughs> Which Pokemon? Jo- but Jonet's made it. Jonet's made it his own. He's found his own like syncopated rhythm. Ding 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 ding. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like I think the way that Jonet has kind of controlled the orphans is it's a musical event. Each one of their duties is now kind of like it's in time. That's that's I love that because it's like. The sh- ship can be wherever, uh, like do whatever, go wherever, fight whoever. But if you're going to be on John's ship, you're going to be able to find the twos and the fours. All right, mm-hmm. I will not, <laughs> I will not tolerate. <laughs> <laughs> that is perfect. All these it's absolutely little, perfect. Little babies, it's like one of them has like the, the little fish that you make noise on. It's like a bunch of kids. A little Guiro, yeah. <laughs> There's one of them got a mouth harp in there. <laughs> so while this is happening, Jonet, you're moving up and down the lines. You're, you're mostly kind of focused on your work. I did pull the bounty. And the thing that you notice is the safe area on the ship is really in one of the cargo decks where you've got a lot of boxes with thick and heavy cargo around. You notice this has been rearranged recently. It's something kind of passive. You're more focused on, I got to get this going, but like, man, who put all these boxes here? Why is this stuff shifted around? Yeah. I'm trying to run an emergency operation here. So, yeah. I think it's it's just it's a very it happens in the flow of everything else. It's like all right, okay, get in here one by one by one. Here we go. And who moved these boxes? And then it just um, keeps on moving. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's cut over to Gable. You are the helms person for for this ship. I'm gonna go um, to the helm. Props. So you're gonna go to the helm. Most likely. Um, 
unless unless uh, Orimar is taking helm, uh, that is uh, something that Orimar would be able to do as captain. Uh, no, I think I'll leave that to Gable. Uh, under this particular instance, I think uh, Orimar is going to go on deck and kind of be uh, first human question mark point of contact. Should they decide to get within <laughs> bellowing range, I don't know if the uh, as a, as a general question, what ship comms is like. Is there like an old timey loudspeaker that you yell into that's like hail? Or so the thing that we know right now is that there is a period of semaphore mm. uh, communication that would call out like when in naval terms you would be calling out your ahoy, which is a a word that is essentially means the question is your captain aboard and can we speak to your captain? Mm-hmm. That would probably be done through semaphore. And then either the ships will dock with one another where they will meet up in the air and there'll be kind of like a personnel exchange where the captains will sort things out or emissaries will be sent from one ship to another on Griffin back. Mm. Um, in that case, uh, so, yeah, uh, leaving leaving the piloting of the ship to uh, to Gable and uh, Oromar is going to go to the semaphore station. And also, I yeah, I, I didn't know what Ohoy meant either. I, I learned the thing today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it means a thing. It's very cool and fun Thank to you, learn James things. Pirate knowledge. James, mm-hmm. what is what's like a book that you would recommend? Don't even sweat books. Go to <laughs> books are my jumps. Books. <laughs> my not. friends, first of all, why are you why are you out here reading? No, 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 no. no. You go to the Pirate History Podcast. That ah. is a very fun and easy way to learn a lot of cool things about pirate history. Mm-hmm. Uh, the stories are told very well. Um, it's very well researched, and it is not boring. I find some history podcasts to be boring. This one is very interesting. You can find them on twitter at black flags cast i believe i'll be honest i will podcasts are kind of for chumps <laughs> <laughs> how do you take oh, listen, we got a real reader over here i guess <laughs> yeah i wait yeah, for, I wait for the transcripts cast. of this bad boy <laughs> <laughs> print them out bind them yourself that interlude aside orimar you head to the semaphore station mm-hmm. and I want you to make a perception check, or it could also be it could also be a streetwise check. I would buy. Uh, my perception is better, so I will go for that. If that's okay. okay. And what's the difficulty? Mm-hmm. Difficulty on this, I am gonna say hard with a blue die. Okay. Three purple, one blue. Oh, my first roll. Oh, Gonna make sure that I can read get out, them properly. Get out the I did camera. my homework, so let's see if the test actually. Even if you out. can't, it's totally fine. Mm-hmm. It is a wash with one advantage. <laughs> there we go. And then that keeps happening. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Success eludes. Wash with one advantage. I am pulling a card here. There we go. And of course, I pull the one card that doesn't exist right now. Here we go. The children. Oh, this does favor you quite well. Mm -hmm. Um, Uh, Oh, no. I should know this one. It's come up a couple times. I can't do the cool stun that I did last time and know exactly what the card is. I'm sorry. Hey, Mm. you know, that 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 was so impressive that one time. You are already (laughs) outperforming. (laughs) I I, I Um, have big shoes to fill. 
you know i, I gotta make sure the, that i'm up to par <laughs> the, the children is consequence inevitability and eternity mm. uh divination is nothing was unobserved a reckoning is coming so you walk in and i'm going to say oromar you are still reorienting yourself with the ship and how it runs mm-hmm. right now because a lot has changed and you've been trying to absorb a lot of information in between rebuilding your physical movements mm. and habits and whatnot. Like you've just had a lot on your plate and to, to be fair, you have absorbed quite a bit of information, but crew logs and whatnot are somewhere lower on your list of priorities. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't strike you as odd who, who is in here. You look around and you see that it does at least look like the bells that called for a half muster is what I'm referring to. Like there would be on a pirate ship, generally speaking, if you saw another ship Mm -hmm. on that ship, you would call sails and everybody would move to their muster stations like prepared for a fight or something. Mm -hmm. A half muster is like something like, yeah, Gable has come back from a scout and been like, hey. I saw another ship. I don't know what's up. We need to look for it. We need to be ready. So certain positions move into certain situations. And that, of course, means the orphans are moved to their safe location Mm -hmm. and people move to the semaphore station. So you do see that the semaphore station is set up and that wouldn't strike you as unusual either. With the advantage combined with pulling the children, I think you are going to notice that it is not just a flag semaphore station Mm. that has been set up. There are two different types of semaphore that would be common on skyships. There are flag semaphores, which are pretty straightforward. You're using banners and flags to signal to other ships that can either happen from a lower deck location or top deck location, depending on how dangerous you think the situation might be. Mm. And there is a lantern semaphore station that is taking advantage of a little bit of fuel and some air piping that would be, you know, coming from one of the furnaces, mm-hmm. some polished, either polished like brass or steel that is formed into kind of a mirror and a lantern on the lower deck of the ship. You see that the lantern station is set up mm-hmm. and you see an old pirate trick. This is something that you personally, I think you and Calvar both had made sure the Uhuru had access to. You see a polarized lens in front of that lantern. Mm -hmm. Essentially, a polarized lens like semaphore station as opposed to a regular semaphore station. Uh, If you had a regular lantern semaphore station, you signal and everybody knows that you're signaling. As long as they understand your code or whatnot, they're communicating with you. Mm. If you use a polarized station, somebody needs to be looking for your ship with a polarized spyglass. If they are, they would be able to see you signaling when it would not appear as though you were signaling to anyone else not using polarized equipment. Mm. Um, so you see the polarized lens in there and you see both the flag and the lantern station set up. It is pretty normal, especially like at this point, Travis is in the form of a man. The sun has gone down. It's pretty normal that you would have both stations set up right now Mm. because they might be able to see flags. They might not. It's about time for the lantern station to set up. The polarized, it could be a disruption of protocol. It could be a bunch of things, Mm -hmm. Um, but it is noteworthy. 
Yeah, that it's there and it wasn't necessarily called to be there. That's also an interesting mm. bit of mind games, especially if it is a pirate trick. Anybody that recognizes a message from that without previous communication is likely to be a pirate. And that narrows down what kind of ship this baby is that we're dealing with here. So Oromar kind of looks, surveys the scene and observes the kind of like polarized lantern and kind of gives a solemn nod and then turns to look out in the vague direction. Do we know what direction the ship is coming from? No, uh, that, that's that's the thing. Mm-hmm. This is a ship that Gable saw a place a hour's flight from. Mm-hmm. Um, this muster call, especially at this time, is probably to make sure that the ship is not likely to be something that you'll encounter. Mm-hmm. It's it, This is precautionary more than we're definitely going to have a meeting. Yeah, soon. we're going to make sure we're not caught unawares. So yeah, uh, Oromar kind of like stands by and the body is still because it's easy enough to kind of keep the body still without falling over internally like the spirit inside the body is rattling they are still very much shaken by travis's admittance that there might be a mutiny upon the ship and there is a slowly bubbling but like growing in volume and vibration paranoia that is sitting within Oromar at the moment, that any of the people in this semaphore room might, you know, turn around. But he's trying to he's trying to keep it on the down low. We need to focus on the task at hand, but it's creeping. Make a cool check. Mm. Uh, presence. This is fun. So uh, actually, while I do this role, uh, there's a, a thing to kind of highlight was building the character with with uh, James previously. So Oromar, when he was alive, was obviously a very charismatic person and mm-hmm. would have had a really high presence. He still believes that he is a very charismatic person. Mm-hmm. However, his body is very much dead and is not charismatic <laughs> at all. So Oromar has a presence of one, um, even if he doesn't act like it. Um, so, does, does Ormar know? Like, will I mean, it's like I, I think it's one of the, it's it's the lies we tell ourselves. I think is probably mm-hmm. the easiest way to put it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, love that. Mm. Gosh, uh, what's the difficulty of this cool check? I say nervously. Um, I'm gonna do average, and I will give you two blue dice okay. on this, because cool has two components mm-hmm. to it. It is understanding the people around you and what's going on with them, mm-hmm. and them understanding you. Mm. Oromar, in this situation, has an advantage of, you can't read Oromar's body language, because Oromar is dead. Mm-hmm. Alright, so we're rolling with one green, two blue, and two purple. What's party? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> bad uh yeah that's uh two failures with an advantage I, i'm going to say that advantage like nobody in this room can read anything that's going on with you mm-hmm. but i think oromar is so busy spinning his wheels on contingencies planning mm. for events right you know oromar is Six-dimensional chess and four steps ahead on each board. Mm -hmm. He is now arranging boards that have nothing to do with the room that's currently in front of him because this triggered a little bit of panic, Mm -hmm. I I think, is is reasonable. So you're just big-picture planning right now. Travis. Hmm. Travis, (laughs) what do you do for a half-muster? Um... 
if this is not correct, tell me. But I feel like he would get up on the deck as well. I feel like whether other people want him to or not, Travis likes to think that he would like to be one of the first people to talk to another ship. Okay. So that might change now that the captain is a little more present. Are you like caught between do you go to the semaphore station or go on the top deck in case there's like a docking procedure? What what do you what what's your thought? So maybe like as as we're going because I was with the captain, right? Mm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like you were all everybody was in the the captain's quarters before y'all went off for half muster. Uh, you know, usually, Captain, I I like to be sort of a first contact guy, uh, but. If that's sort of something that you want to do, I'm happy to be a second contact guy. Uh, mm. So you, you know, it's up to you. But just saying, I'm at your service. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he does a little like you know, one of with uh, Oromar being, as previously said, several uh, virtual chessboards deep. We're going like full watching Queen's Gambit three times simultaneously right now. <laughs> um, mm. And uh, Travis kind of, like, hailing Oromar, uh, jolts that thought process. And he turns around and intends to sign to Travis. Uh, You're going to be by my side, right? But what he signs instead (laughs) is, you're with me, confirm. Uh, It feels more commanding than what Oromar actually intends. (laughs) Confirmed. Uh... Locked and loaded, uh, ready to rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, Travis, I need you to make a perception check now. Okay. And for this, this will be an average check for you. That's two perps or three? Mm-hmm. Two perps. Two perps. <laughs> okay. Two advantages, a failure, and a triumph. Oh, my God. Mm. Holy crap. Okay. But you got the failure. Let me break <laughs> this down so you aren't getting the information that I was trying to communicate to you but you are getting something else instead so you look around the room and you realize instinctually because you are a very charismatic like social navigator This room is a little bit tense. You can't think of why, and that's because you're usually not bothered to think about why. And at this point, you just grab the nearest chair at the semaphore station and sit down. As you sit down, uh, I imagine Travis like sits in a very sort of casual, deshabille way, and one of your hands happens to graze across a small book that has been left near the semaphore station. And you doing that will be your triumph. Hey Heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to the mid-roll. Heroes, I want to start off by pointing out that it's Margaret Week. Margaret Week is a fan-organized celebration of everyone's favorite Black Lily, Margaret. 
All week, people are posting fan art, fan fiction, and fan music dedicated to Margaret. And you can check it all out by following at Margaret Week on Twitter or following the Margaret Week hashtag on Twitter and Tumblr. People are posting so many incredible pieces, and I am having such a great time looking at all of them. So good a time, in fact, that I couldn't help but join in on the fun. Which also means this week's episode is gonna be a little different. Normally, after the break, we would be returning to the main Skyjack's narrative. But for this week, I wrote a special piece of fiction narrated by Margaret about one of the major details of the world of Sphere, explaining some Skyjack's lore in the form of an original folktale. And after writing it, editing it, and recording it for air, it ended up being longer than 20 minutes, which was way more than I wanted to put in a Dear Uhuru space. So the entire second act of the show is going to be devoted to the Maiden and the Heart. I sincerely hope everyone enjoys this story, and don't worry, we'll be back with the main Skyjack's narrative next week. This is also kind of half pulling us out of a bind, because we had a little trouble with our recording schedule in August. But I really think this story is great, and I hope you love it. Again, huge shout out to everyone participating in Margaret Week. The cast and I are loving everything you've done. Before we get back to the show, I'm going to take a quick moment and thank some of our backers on Patreon. Joshua Chase, thank you. Samuel Lewis, thank you so much. Jacob Makanu, thank you so much. Shazari Simon, thank you. Carol, thank you so much. Maybe I should be saying that like Charlie Kelly from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Carol, thank you. Nat the Void, thank you very much. Matt Gooshurst, thank you. Sarah Walland, thank you very much. Jennifer Klein, thank you. Mike Katzen, Mike Kantzer, thank you. Katya Young. Thank you so much. Saskia Den Oden. Thank you. Lorna Stevens. Thank you so much. Max Lucy. Thank you. JB Veneer. Thank you very much. Mick. Thank you. And Caleb Peralt. Thank you so much. Thanks again to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We wouldn't be able to make this show without you. I did want to have a new piece of bonus content up on the Patreon this week. I wasn't able to do it. I am really busy with other projects right now, but I am going to try and get it up soon because I am so excited to share it with you all. Hopefully this Margaret Week content has tided you over for a little bit. If you would like access to that bonus content when it goes up and all of the great bonus content we already have, head over to patreon.com slash one shot podcast and sign up to be a supporter. Not only do you get cool stuff, but you help us make this show. And I can't tell you how much that means to me, uh, especially as I learned very recently that we had our eight year anniversary at the One Shot Network last week. That is a huge milestone, and we definitely could not have passed it without support from listeners like you. So thanks to everyone who supports us already and everyone who's going to support us in the future. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get back in the sky. You have been stirring in your sleep, darling. The dreams that found you won't bring you the rest you need. Something weighs on you. I can feel the thrum of your twisting in our thread. Lie still, 
steady your breath. Your Margaret is here. I am your maestron this night. Feel my arms around you. You do not need to speak. I can feel your words catching. Listen to my voice instead. These hours are too idle for thoughts that sting. And if sweet dreams will not come to you, I shall speak you one. It occurs to me that no one has told you the story of the maiden and the heart. It is an old story. One that the sun-kissed lilies taught to me before I took my black. And it is a story that all folk should know. Long ago, before the stars fell, when the seas were tamed to sail and the seasons flowed in order, there lived the soul of a maiden. She was tall and strong, her jaw set and firm, and her shoulders broad. She was the only soul in her village who could string her bow, and when she drew it, it was as smooth as breathing. By all accounts, she was lovely and rare. She had her father's nose and his father's brow, the most noble features of a line of handsome hunters, looks that drew admiration from so many. But she did not love her reflection. All save her eyes. She had her mother's eyes. They were gentle and bright, betraying the softness that lived in her heart. To her, broad shoulders felt awkward and hulking. Her noble features felt thick and stony. She carried too many hard edges. She longed for the curves of her bow. When she came of age, she retreated to the wood to avoid the looking glasses the plans of many to see her take wife, and the world of man. She wandered the queen's passages and tread as light as her frame would allow. Eventually, she slayed a boar. She offered its heart to the queen as thanks for her solitude. The queen has always been fickle. She loves to be praised and paid. However, the boar was already hers, and so too was its heart. The queen felt that her wood was simply invaded by some thick-necked hunter only capable of the barest respect. So she sent her heart. He was a magnificent thing. A stag of pure white, with eyes darker than shadows, and a rack that held as many points as there were stars in the sky. It stood on graceful legs as strong as oaks and ran with the gentle sound of dew falling on moss. It was under the queen's moon that the heart found her. She had finished washing in a pool surrounded by the queen's ring. The heart caught moonlight on its brilliant coat that reflected the bark of the silver groves. Our hunter had never seen such a brilliant thing in all her days, and she also knew that this beauty would mean her death. The beast charged with a delicate thunder. Its hooves were powerful enough to cleave stone, but fell so gently that it did not disturb the moss. It rushed across the water, causing only the barest ripples. Still, it moved faster than any eye could see, a brilliant white flash in the moonlight. Had the hunter been any other, she would have fallen to the stag's antlers. Her grace and reflex were unmatched, though, even by the queen's own guardian. 
She rolled in time to avoid the cutting stone, and the heart connected with a tree behind her. His charge felled it with a marvelous crash. He looked to find his quarry and finish his task, but the tree was a silver grove, the cruel gift of the sovereign to the queen. Its beauteous bark and sparkling sap are quick to furious flame. With a desperate strike of flint and steel, the tree roared ablaze, and the heart stared across the flames at the hunter. He could follow her, but it would risk the fire spreading to the queen's sacred forest. The hunter disappeared into the night. And so it was for a season, an old season, when the spring stretched long across many cycles of the moon. By day, the hunter slept, foraged, and made what offerings she could. She hoped that something might appease the queen. And at times she also wept for it seemed that even here, no one could see her for what she was. By night, she danced with the heart. He was too fast, too strong, too careful to slay without stalking or study, and he left her no time for either. During this time, they only had thoughts for one another. The hunter learned every inch of her pursuer's form and counted his thousand points in frantic seconds between dodges, sprints, and aching hush. The heart learned the mind of the hunter in careful tracking and thrashed confrontation. She always moved in the ways she needed. She always changed as he learned her steps. It was not every night that the heart met the hunter, but it was most nights. Only on the new moon, when the dark truly settled in the queen's domain, could the hunter rest and hide. The moon belonged to the queen, but the stars belonged to the sovereign, and his light fell only for his creations, and so only the hunter could see. The heart followed scent through unyielding night. Away from the reflection of silver groves, there was no light to guide him, and the hunter had learned to step with gentleness that rivaled his own, so he could not search by sound. He could not smell the ancient iron of the wicked trap, but he felt the teeth. It was a ghastly thing, taut and jagged, built by one of the lesser stalkers that he felled long ago. His anguished cry reached the hunter with ease as she was listening for the whisper of a feather. She found him standing proudly despite his agony. The bright light of the antediluvian heavens of the living sovereign was more than enough for her to see the dark blood on his brilliant white coat. The hunter took aim. The beast was large, but her bow was strung taut enough that a single arrow at full draw could split a log. Over the months of their chase, she had scavenged and crafted three perfect arrows. A lesser thing could never hope to kill the beast clean, and even after all she had suffered, she would accept no other death for the great white stag. The heart could not see her, but he could feel her. He faced her and death with dignity. In her victory, the hunter couldn't help but think the beast was so beautiful so graceful, so pure. It would be a shame to further sully its coat with blood, 
Then her arrow flew. It shattered a rock at the heart's feet. The beast reared in surprise, and the hunter knocked another arrow. This one sailed through a narrow gap in the heart's antlers, embedding in an ancient tree behind it. The hunter shook as she knocked her final arrow. She aimed a third time, but she knew the truth already. She could not harm the heart. It possessed all the grace and beauty she desired. To destroy it would be to destroy herself. She instead loosed her arrow toward the void of the moon. She approached the heart and laid her bow at its feet and wept. Better to die here. Better to fall to the heart. For if she was pierced by its points, she will have held its beauty inside herself at least once. The heart listened in silence. It had seen the hunter knock and draw countless times, and her aim never erred. He felt the snap of her bowstring and the powerful quiver of its curves. He had seen his death in three ways. Yet each time this hunter had moved the arrow's path to spare him. This was not the spiteful man his mother described. The heart bent his head over the hunter as she wept and spoke. Why have you come to my mother's realm, O child of the sovereign? The hunter replied, I have come to leave the world of man. I do not want to be the thing that they tell me I am. When they look at me, I feel it on my brow. I feel it in my shoulders, and I feel it at my hips. But I do not feel it in my soul. The awareness of this suffocates like death. The heart regarded the hunter's words and the silence that followed. If you do not want what you have been given, then what is it that you desire? I desire nothing, to feel nothing, to spare me the weight of myself. The hunter steeled herself to face the soft beauty of the heart once more, and her tears returned anew. I want one thing. I want your beauty. I want it to be in the world. I see it as the hope that I hold for my deepest self. And the heart caught the reflection of the stars in the hunter's eyes. It was the only light in an endless dark, so they shone like the sun. In them he found her soul. He beheld her as she was beyond flesh bore witness to her truest self, and could not help but think that he had never seen anything so beautiful, so graceful, and so pure. Dear heart, do not make me wait. I cannot live as I know I am. Let me die with your beauty in my own heart. The heart knew that even at the direction of his mother and the hunter together, he could not harm her. He did not wish for anything more than kindness for the soul he had just touched. No, you are not the callous hunter I have been sent to slay. And so they found a weary peace 
The hunter freed and mended the heart's hind leg, and by morning his pains were gone. They spent a time learning to trust and shortly thereafter to love. They came to know one another in the dark and see one another in the light. It was a short time, for all moments in bliss feel brief. As the heart had come to know his love, he had also come to know her pain. Even in the softness of love, it weighed. A burden shared is still a burden felt. He came to a decision and made it known. Tonight, we shall travel to see my mother. I am certain she will know how to help you live as your soul yearns. And so they spent a final gentle day and set for the dark heart of the wood come evening. They passed the ancient trees which sit just beneath the stars, over the dark mosses that bruise in sunlight, through the gnarling groves no mind can unravel, to the central ring of silver grove around the sacred glade. The hunter knew better than to enter the queen's glade unbidden, so the heart continued alone. You have disobeyed me, my son. It was not my intention for you to bring the hunter here. He holds the sovereign's grace and gratitude. I do not wish his trouble in my woods. Mother, you have mistaken her. The heart was bold, as only something loved by someone so dangerous can be. Am I, child? The queen was fickle then, as she is now, and sometimes favored boldness. Yes, mother, I have seen the hunter's heart. I was outmatched. Three times the hunter's arrows found my heart, and three times I did not fall. There are many who would die to claim my head. This one would die to see me unharmed. She may have been given the form of the sovereign, but her soul is a gentle beauty. Does this hunter please you, my son? Yes, mother. Then she shall be yours. She is free to wander my woods so long as she offers love to you, and so long as that love should please you. Mother, wait. I did not come to ask you for her. She is not yours to give, nor is she mine to take. She has offered herself to me, and I offered myself to her in return. I came to ask you to help her. Her soul is at odds with her form. It causes her pain and drove her from her home. Give her the power to change as you have done for me. Free her from this suffering. I cannot, child. The heart snorted. Are you not the queen? I am the wood. I am the soil. I am the screaming verdant dance of life and death that swallows the mountain. I am the sun that makes day. At night, I am the moon that shines in a predator's eye. I too am the prey and the rot that claims them both. Yet you cannot help her. She is as the Sovereign wills. 
Then it is not fair. She is in pain. The Sovereign wills many terrible things, child. As do I. But you have given me grace. I am not touched by illness or time. I do not know hunger or chill. All things in my power to give. But the power to change is yours. Then can I help her? Yes, child. That is within your light. But it is no small task, and it carries a heavy price. Then I shall pay it. So rash. You offer what you do not know. I do not know the price, but I know what it buys. And that is worth anything. You must give your life, the one I have given you. You will have to change again, and it will be a life that you do not know. The queen hoped his heart would waver, but it did not. Then it will be done. You will have to stay with her. You cannot grant change to a child of the Sovereign so simply. He clutches tightly. Your devotion to her can never waver. Then it won't. Others will come to seek your power. Her soul is not the only one touched by the Sovereign's spite. Then I will help them as well. His resolve was unyielding. She saw that he had come to the fullness of his light. and She felt pride, but it was touched by sorrow. Oh, my son, I shall miss you. Then I shall remain as well. And then the hunter was called to the glade. She beheld the forest in its sprawling majesty, and so too did the forest behold her, and saw her as she was. You are the hunter who has captured my son's heart. The hunter nodded. I have already bid my farewell. You must bid yours while we still have night. The hunter was gripped by fear and sorrow as she rushed to the heart who was laid in a patch of dirt. She sputtered and choked a protest, but he called her to quiet. I offer this to you, and any so afflicted. I am not leaving you. I am to become a part of you as you truly are. You will have my grace, my beauty. You will look upon yourself and love you as I love you. I will give you this change and it will taste sweet. Tend me and care for me and that sweetness will be with you for all your life and all the world. I shall not see you, a maiden, but I shall feel it. The hunter listened as she wept into her lover's neck. Eventually, the tears slowed. Be with me as I change. And the maiden drew back and held her love's face as he shifted. He filled the dirt and became a splendid bloom of tender white flowers. His thousand points became strong and hearty forking roots. The hunter knew that he was not gone, but he had changed, and that felt like absence. 
The queen's hand held her from despair. Come, child, I will show you how to tend his roots, and they are not watered with tears. And so they did. As the season shifted outside the glade, the queen held the summer in her court. He spread as swift as a bloom as he charged as a stag. And soon he lived in all empty places, still careful to step with grace around the life that his mother so cherished. The queen and hunter harvested the root and used it to brew, and this became heart root tea, the gift that allows all who desire to change. The first heart root tea was shared in the queen's glade, surrounded by loving flowers. It had much of what the hunter sought, but she knew it was not done. She searched the full bounty of the forest, mixing columbine, willow bark, thistledown, and gentle summer leaves. In time, she was a maiden, her own maiden, with light shoulders, arms strong enough to string and draw her bow, and soft features that matched her mother's eyes. The queen found in her the beauty and grace of her son, rooted in the joy of a soul finally in bloom. When it came time for the maiden to leave, the heart root followed her and flourished. It is found in the cups of many who are called to change, and it waits in gardens and brilliant wild patches for those who have not yet put words to their yearning. It also stayed behind and lived in the queen's court, which is now always summer so that she can watch his white coat sway in the blooms. This is a story, an old story, older than the fall of the stars. But we know that it is true, for when we dig beneath those tender white flowers, we can see the thousand points of the heart, strong and full with the power to change. There now, I can feel it lifting. Your thread now sways as gently as breath. It is calm, but not a calm for resting. I think that I will make some tea, and if you feel ready, I will pour you a cup as well. Campaign Skyjacks is a one-shot network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter over at CampaignPod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing.
Welcome to Character Creation Cast, a show where we create and discuss characters, the best part of role-playing games, with guests using their favorite systems. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Bolter. And I'm your other host, Amelia Antrim. Join us as we sit down with game designers, podcasters, and fans of games as we dive into learning about different RPGs through the lens of character creation. It's a combination of character building, player advice, game design insights, and even a little bit of fan fiction for a different game every month. We tackle a variety of new and old games, both well-known and indie-produced titles. We learn how creating characters can tell us a lot about the games themselves. Check us out today anywhere you can get podcasts or on the OneShot Podcast Network at OneShotPodcast.com. You can find more great gaming shows over at OneShotPodcast.com. Like All My Fantasy Children. All My Fantasy Children is a character creation, world building, and storytelling podcast powered by you. Each week, best friends Aaron Catano-Saez and Jeff Stormer take a listener-submitted prompt and, using some of their favorite tabletop RPGs, create an original fantasy character. Along the way, they populate a shared universe one story at a time. They share laughs, stories, and verbal hugs along the way. Jonnet Kessler was played by Tyler Davis, who can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Tyler A. Dave. He also co-stars and consults on Showtime's Work in Progress. Gable was played by Liz Anderson, who can be found on Twitter at Liz Anderson underscore underscore underscore, or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Matigo was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs, or on his podcasts, Bill Buds and Dilettante Ball. Captain Oromar Vale was played by Nathan Blades, who can be found on Twitter at PhantomArtsENT. You can also find them streaming on twitch.tv slash theneoncaster. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find him on Twitter over at A-R-N-E... P-A-R-R-O-T-T. You can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, or on his podcast, Neo Scum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The World of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists, and Illimat, produced by Together Studios. This show uses a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system, designed by Sam Stewart and a team of talented professionals who were fired by the private equity firm owning Fantasy Flight Games. To the strangers who've ever been kind And once for our friends ne'er to rise Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who know we can never deny The call of the sky